We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. I can't wait for Sundays. Um, I cannot wait to be with you here on Sundays and see what God is going to do in the midst of His people. And so let's take our Bibles this morning and turn them again to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 16 through 40 as we turn to one of the most famous chapters in all of the Old Testament. We've been walking through this series, Humble Heroism, looking at the life of Elijah. And so we find ourselves in one of the quintessential passages about what it looks like for God to take on anyone or anything. Some have called this the ultimate showdown in Scripture. Some, when describing this passage, have likened it to the greatest sports events, the greatest military battles of all time. When things come to a head, it's a winner-take-all championship, if you will. It's been building and building and building at this moment. When we started the story, and it seems like Elijah comes out of nowhere, out of Tishbe. And then we followed along and saw where this humble prophet's willing to stand before the most wicked king and queen that have ever existed in Israel's history. And he tells them that there's not going to be any rain in the land of Israel. We find then that the prophet goes into hiding. He finds himself at the Kareth Ravine, and God provides for him there until he's directed to go to Zarephath, and he meets a widow woman where God miraculously supplies oil and flour for him for his time there until tragically this widow's son dies. And we saw last week how a miracle working God does only what God can do and raises him from the grave. We also have discovered in our reading, if you read the first part of 1 Kings 18, that Elijah now is ready to make his way towards Ahab. And he runs into another prophet who's working inside Ahab's palace, a man by the name of Obadiah, a different Obadiah than the one in the Minor Prophets. But Obadiah is going to go to the king and tell him that Elijah is here. And the whole moment is setting us up for what we're about to stand and read together because all of it has come to the climax. All of it is built up to this moment. And we see one of the most fascinating and inspiring texts that you can find in all of the biblical record as we read together this morning. So let's stand together and read 1 Kings chapter 18. We begin in verse 16 together. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab, excuse me, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. 
And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. And so they took the bull, the bull given them and prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. And midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he arranged the wood, and he cut the bull into pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. And the water ran down around the altar, and it even filled the trench. And at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Lord God, show us today that You are a jealous God. You are a consuming fire, and You accept no rivals. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated this morning. As you look onto the screen, you'll see that big idea that our God is a consuming fire that accepts no rivals. And if that is the case, the question for us today is how do you and I live in light of that? How do we live in light of that big idea? And I want to submit to you that some things jump out of this passage. And the first thing that jumps out of this passage is one of my favorite points. I never thought I would place this as a sermon point on a screen and read it out loud. But here it is. Number one, how do we live in light of that big idea? Number one, some of you need to start causing some trouble. You need to start causing some trouble. You say, well, I never thought I'd take that, that as a note. Well, when Elijah steps back, hasn't seen Ahab in three years, and what has Elijah said? Is that you, you what? You troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, I'm not the troublemaker. You're the one. You and your sorry wife. You and your sorry family. You and your apostate bunch. You're the one. You're the man. The reason it hasn't rained here is because you don't love Jesus, because you haven't worshipped God, because you've led people astray. You're the problem. 
Now, let's just say that took some intestinal fortitude. You're the problem. We need a few more people who aren't so politically correct that they're willing to cause enough trouble that they're willing to look at a dark society and sinners and say, you're the problem. Your sin is the problem. Your heart is the problem. Your worship is the problem. We need people who are willing to cause trouble. Sometimes I think in church, we think that the whole goal of Christianity is to be nice. I don't find that in my Bible. Now, does that mean I don't need to be kind? Certainly I'm supposed to be kind. That's commanded. But if the goal of my ministry is for everybody to say, he sure was a nice guy, no, I hope that sometime in my life somebody says, you know, that guy wasn't scared to cause a little trouble. He wasn't scared to call a spade a spade. He wasn't scared to address an issue. He wasn't scared to talk about lostness. He wasn't scared to talk about the wrath of God. He wasn't scared to talk about hell. He wasn't scared to confront a problem. How many of you in here know today that we need some people who aren't scared to cause a little trouble for the glory of God? Amen? Amen. That's number one. That's just the first point. Number two. Choose sides. Choose sides. Isn't that a simple point? Look at what happens here. Elijah gathers them all together, and, and we just read it all together, but, but I just want to get down to this one sentence. We find ourselves in verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But then look at the next sentence. Read the next sentence. But the people said nothing. Elijah said, it's decision day, baby. It's time, you bunch of fence riders. You want to have your feet in both camps. You want to act like you know the Lord, but you want to worship Baal. You want to please the king and his apostate wife but you also want to have the favor of the Lord. You want to go on the Sabbath and give a few sacrifices and then dance around an Asherah pole on Sunday and Monday. No more. God's not putting up with it. And the reason you're starving and the reason it hadn't rained and the reason your crops aren't growing and the reason your children are dying is because you have forsaken the Lord. And so today is a day of decision. You stand in the valley of decision. It's decision time. It's time to choose sides. So he challenges 850 prophets. That's a lot of folks. There's about 500 people in here right now. About You add 350, 400 people to the number of people in this room, that's who he's taking on. It's pretty impressive. He says, go up to the mountain. I love this. My God owns that mountain. Get two bulls. He owns those two bulls too, but bring them up there. Make an altar. My God owns the wood, but make an altar out of it. And so they go over to the mountain, and he invites them all to come. It's interesting that Mount Carmel was known in that region as Baal's home, that they thought that Baal lived on Mount Carmel. They pictured him holding a lightning bolt, and that's how he was depicted in many of the pictures in that time. It overlooked the plain of Jezreel, still does, and that is the most contested piece of real estate in all of world history. All the Every single continent has fought over that strip of real estate. It has been, still is, contested. And so they, they're overlooking this, this valley of Jezreel. And the reason that's important is that isn't the only battle that's going to be fought in Jezreel. 
That is where Revelation tells us that the battle of Armageddon is going to be fought in the very valley that Carmel overlooks. Are you starting to see some foreshadowing? How many of you have taken an English class and they've taught you about foreshadowing? That some events in literature kind of give you a hint or a clue that something else is coming. You got a hint that something else is coming in Jezreel. This is not the only event biblically that's going to take place. And so he tells them, you need to choose sides. If, if you think that that's only found here in Kings, you remember Moses in Exodus 32? He comes down the mountain, they're worshiping a golden calf. He tells them it's time to choose sides. Joshua, Joshua 24, 15. He says, you need to choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Jesus said it very clearly. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Do you remember this verse? Jesus says, you are either with me or you are against me. He says it again in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, when he is speaking to John the Revelator. And he said, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but you are lukewarm, so I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He says, it's decision time, right? It's time to figure something out. And we learn that God is not an idea you can play with, but a king that you must submit to. Now, I want you to take this note. This one's not up on the screen, but I want you to take this note. If you're going to leave here and talk about this in small groups, this is, this is a specific quote that I want you to talk about today. Jesus will not be your Savior if He is not your Lord. A lot of people want Jesus as Savior but they don't want him to be their Lord. And that's nowhere in Scripture. You cannot have him as one without the other. If he is your Savior, he is also your Lord. If he is not your Lord, then he's not your Savior. People have said before, well, I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. Well, that's great, but you never submitted to him. You're lost. There's an enormous difference. And that's what's being pointed out in this passage. And we need to... Uh, I hate that I even have to give this as a note or take time to point this out, but we absolutely do in the day in which we live. We live in such a pluralistic culture that people want to say, well, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth and what's right for you can be right for you and what's right for you can be right for you. If two worldviews are diametrically opposed to each other, then both cannot be right. I'll give you some modern day examples. You can't be Christian and Muslim. You can't be Christian and atheist. You can't be Christian and Hindu. You can't be Christian and Buddhist. You can't be Christian and New Age. You can't be Christian and anything. The reason is, is because the very core tenets of every other faith is diametrically opposed to the teachings of the gospel. So you can't have it either way. This is not Burger King. You don't get to have it your way, right? There's only one way. And so we cause trouble, we choose sides, and then I love this. Oh, I love this. I, we, we could spend an entire, entire sermon here and have a blast in verses 26 through 29, number three, see clearly the foolishness of false religion. Watch what happens. So they gather up, they took the, the bull, they prepared it, they put it on the altar. It says they cry out all morning long till noon, oh, Baal, answer us. They're dancing around. And Elijah just sits back and watches. Maybe he's got, you know, a, 
a 9th century B.C. lawn chair. And he's just hanging out because he already knows what's going to happen. And he can't stand it anymore. So at noon, Elijah starts talking trash. That's why I love this dude. He encourages me. He, he's got 850 people that would just as soon kill him, and he's talking trash. And all of a sudden, he says, hey, wait a minute. You might have heard the, the sarcasm in my voice even I was reading it. It comes off the P. He says he taunts them. Shout louder. Maybe your God's deaf. Maybe he needs a hearing aid. Your God can't hear you. Why don't you shout a little louder? If you really explore the Hebrew of what he's saying, he's saying, maybe your God's traveling. He's probably just in the bathroom. Room. Maybe he's on a break. Maybe he's taking a nap. Shout louder. Get more frantic. Dance around harder. In fact, why don't you get some knives and cut yourself? They do all of that. And it gets crazier and crazier and crazier. And the Bible makes a point two different times in those verses to tell us this, but I love the way it's phrased in verse 29. No response, no answer, no one paid attention. Did you catch that? The repetition there is intentional. No response, no one answered, no one paid attention. And it jumped off the page at me, and I think this is, this is worth spending a few minutes with as well. Where did we get to the point in Christianity that we thought somehow hysteria meant that people were truly worshiping? In the last 20 years in the evangelical church, it's a joke. People running around acting like an idiot, shouting and hollering and losing control of their mind, flopping around, screaming, uncontrollable chants, unintelligible voices, losing control of their mind, swaying back and forth, babbling and mumbling. Hmm. It's interesting in Scripture, every time you see something like that, it's not worship of God. It's actually heathen worship of false gods. There's nowhere commanded in Scripture that you would lose control of your mind or that you would work yourself in such a hysteria or a frenzy. In fact, Paul tells us just the opposite, that it ought to be orderly and befitting. But yet we found ourselves in a day where I heard one scholar call it evangelical Baalism because we think that somehow we can manipulate God. Oh, if we just drop the lights down a little more, if we just beat the drums a little harder, if we just shout as loud as we can, if we just say the same things over and over and over again, if the altars are filled with enough people, if more of you would raise your hands, if people would run around, that's the doctrine of demons. That's not biblical Christianity. I'm not telling you that your heart shouldn't be in it. Absolutely. If your emotions aren't affected, it's because you don't understand the gospel. But not losing control of our mind, not losing control of our faculties, not losing control of our senses, that's not the doctrine of scriptural worship. That's the doctrine of false religion. So not only does it tell us that we should cause trouble, not only does it tell us we should choose sides, not only should we see clearly the foolishness of false religion, but then watch this. Verses 30 through 37, we learn something. We learn that we need to pray well. We need to pray well. 
Elijah gathers the people unto himself. And the first thing it says he does is he repairs the altar. What's the why? What is an altar representative of? It is the place where people meet with God. Always, always, always. That's what an altar is. Can I tell you that there are some of your lives that need a repaired altar? There are some of your families that need a repaired altar. There are churches that need a repaired altar because before anything gets done, these people haven't come to the Lord honestly with their heart in so long that the altar had to be built, and it's not accidental that he places 12 stones. Now, those represent the 12 tribes, but this is an important historical point that if you don't pay attention, you'll miss this in the passage. The kingdom's divided at this point. There are 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. Not only has Elijah, watch this, not only has he insulted all of the Baal prophets, but he's causing enough trouble that he doesn't place 10 stones, he places 12 stones to remind the nation of Israel that they are one group, one people, and the whole reason they're divided is because of their sin. Even the altar was convicting. And then he prays. And man, this, this prayer... This blew me away because I just want to point this out. In the original Hebrew, it's short in the English, very short. But in the original Hebrew, 60 words, 60 words. These people have been praying from dawn till late in the evening all day long, screaming and hollering and cutting themselves and running around. And Elijah prayed a prayer that took less than 20 seconds. Hmm. Reminds me of what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 6. He said, don't pray like the pagans who just go babbling about, thinking that the number of their words is going to ensure their answered prayer. The Lord knows what you need before you pray it. What's so incredible about our Lord is that it's not about our emotional fervor it's about the authenticity of our heart and our genuineness before God that we come before him and pray. But what's so fascinating about this public prayer is that Elijah had done a lot of private prayer before he ever, ever asked a public prayer. And so because of that, he was obsessed he was obsessed not with his own advancement. He was obsessed not with his own rescue. What was he obsessed with? He was obsessed singularly with the glory of God. God, glorify yourself. Bring these people back to you. He's not just worried about whether he's going to be vindicated and whether he's going to be promoted. One of the reasons that we don't see answered prayer in our day is because we have taught people that the way to pray is to name it and claim it and pray selfishly over your desires and your wants and your needs. And you're never going to see God rain down in your life if you make yourself the number one thing that you're praying about. If you pray for the glory of God and are obsessed with the glory of God, that's a prayer that God comes alongside and answers. And so Elijah shows us that what it looks like to really pray simply, to pray directly, and to pray in a way. And here is a personal conviction that I have for my life and I have for this church. Pray in a way that God has to show up. And here's what I mean by that. If God doesn't send fire, this is a bad deal. 
If God doesn't blow up that altar, this is a seriously horrible situation. But what can't happen is that fire come to that altar by any other way. And we have a lot of people that want to bring strange fire to the altar. I want to somehow get this wood lit by theatrics and manipulation and human means and human systems. Oh, friends, when will it be again that we return and allow God to be God and pray things that are bigger than ourselves and put ourselves out there to recognize that he is a God that can light the altar on fire, but he's also a God that he is the only way that certain things can be met. I'm so guilty in my own life of trying to come up with ways that God could do something, and then when I pray, I ask him to use the method and the means I've already come up with. Maybe I'm the only one that's ever done that, but I'm very guilty of that. Sometimes I guess when I approach the Lord, I've been very convicted by this passage to bow my head and simply ask him to do what only he can do and quit bringing all my thoughts and all my suggestions and all my ideas and all my pragmatism and all of my plans and all of my structure. Not that anything's wrong with having some of those things, but let God be God so that one day when somebody would look out on it, they would say, look what God did. Look what God did. That's what I want to happen. I want people to be amazed by the Lord, not people to be amazed by our systems and our programming and our organization and our own visions. I want people to be amazed with God. Amen? That's what we're praying for. And then not only do we need to pray well, but after we pray well, this is huge. We've got to escape the fire. We have got to escape the fire. It tells us in verses 38 and 39 that God burned up the sacrifice. He burned up the wood. He burned up the stones. But I found it interesting, and maybe some of you asked this same question. Why, in a, when there had been three and a half years of drought, why did God send fire and not rain? Seemed like to me that the greater need would have been rain. It would have been more impressive. Now, that's coming if you've cheated and read a little further along in the story. But why at this point, why not say, oh, God, send the flood and just whoosh, a deluge? Why? Why fire, not rain, when it had been three and a half years of drought? Why? I think that's a question worth asking. Before the mercy of rain can ever come, there must be the acceptable sacrifice for sin. Shedding of blood always is necessary for the remissions of sin. You see this on the blood that is on the altar when they cut up this bull. The fire of God's wrath, listen to me, the fire of God's wrath will either fall on guilty people or the fire of God's wrath, wrath will, fire, will come down on a sacrificial substitute. So why would God or why would we look to God for favor, for mercy, for rain when we have not given him our allegiance? We talk about having faith in his promises, but it does no good to have faith in his promises if you're not willing to repent of sin. Idols must be destroyed before his worship will be accepted. It's why before this event ever happened, he said, you must choose for yourself who you're going to serve. But you have to do that before God's ever going to accept your worship, before he's ever going to bring blessing into your life. In Acts chapter 2, 
we read about the fire that fell at Pentecost. You remember that? The fire at Pentecost could never fall until the sacrifice at Golgotha. Why did the fire fall? Because there was an acceptable sacrifice that was given for the remission of sin. You say, well, I I think I understand this, but why is this a big deal for me? Because the fire of God's wrath either has to fall on you or it has to fall on Jesus for you. That's a big deal. And everything else, everything else is subservient to that fact. And the people find themselves in this moment, they find them prostrate before God because they understand something, finally, finally they grasp that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hebrews 12, 29, God is a consuming fire. The Bible tells us that God is love, but it also tells us that God is a consuming fire. God often indicated his acceptance of an offering by a fire that consumed that offering. He did it in Judges 1. He did it in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And so the point of this is to trust God, to trust the Lord Jesus before the fire falls. When is the fire going to fall? The fire is either going to fall at your death or at the second coming. And then I I let verse 40 be the last verse that we read. Because I believe that when most people read it, they are going to feel like this is way too extreme. Because what happens? Elijah brought all of those prophets to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. Well, that seems a little much. Especially to our 21st century minds. But what we need to understand is this. We must grasp the gravity of sin and the holiness of God and that apostasy is a crime against God. It is high treason, and God was finished with them. The wrath of God fell on their heart. It fell on their lives. It fell on them temporally, and it fell on them eternally. And I think a great question for someone here to ask is this. How can I know whether or not God's finished with me yet? I think that'd be a good answer to know. Let me tell you, right now, because you're you're asking that question, God is not finished with you because you still have conviction on your heart. You still hear the Holy Spirit is calling on your life. You still feel the tug, and obviously, because you're asking that question, you are not deaf to the Spirit's call. But I want you to make no mistake about it. Those who do not worship Jesus Christ, the Son, will be punished eternally and forever by his Father. They will be cast into the lake of fire, a place where the Bible says where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is not the ceasing of existence. It is the torment of the wrath of God being doled out on your soul for 10,000 times 10,000 years. And the reason that you need Jesus is because his fire is either going to fall on Jesus for those hours on Calvary or it's going to fall on you, period. There must be an acceptable substitute and sacrifice for sin. I told you that when we started that some have called this the greatest showdown in Scripture. 
I completely disagree with that. It's a nice thought, and this is a great passage, and this is a great victory, but it pales in comparison. Oh, about nine centuries later, there would be a group of people who would believe that they had defeated a Christian movement, that they had shut the Lord Jesus up, that they had closed the mouths of his followers, that legalistic tradition could go on the same as it always had done, that they had finally, not only the people, but the hordes of hell themselves could rejoice because after 33 years of his life on earth, they had nailed him to a tree through his wrist. They had nailed him to a tree through his ankles. They had wrapped a crown of thorns around his head. They had pierced his side and placed him naked on a tree. They had mocked him and they had spit upon him and they had declared mockingly that he was the king of the Jews. They had left him up there until he expired having breathed his last and they took him down and because he was poor he didn't even own a tomb and Joseph of Arimathea took him and he said let me have his body and he wrapped him he took him and he placed him in that garden tomb and they rolled the stone away and they put the Roman soldiers in front and Satan all of the demons of hell all of the religious leaders and the Roman authorities thought this showdown is over right we've won we're done with him, the one they call the king of the Jews, but they weren't prepared, and some people in our day are not prepared either because, friends, it was Friday, but Sunday was coming. Sunday was coming. And I want you to know that up from the grave he arose, and in the greatest showdown in all of history, my champion of love, the one who defeated sin and defeated guilt and defeated shame, and he won victory and salvation for you and for me and for all those that would repent of sin and place their faith in him. You need to know today that over that empty tomb that two words are exclaimed, he won. He won the showdown at Calvary. He won the showdown for your soul. And what that means is one day at Armageddon, back in the valley of Jezreel, maybe it will be, that as you look out over Mount Carmel, you will wonder, does Satan and the forces of hell have any chance? But what Revelation tells us is that what some people have acted like was going to be a great battle is not going to be a battle at all because at the word of my Savior's mouth, all of it will be destroyed. Now, why do you keep fooling around and not submitting to that God? There is no reason and no excuse. There is no God but Jehovah. There is no salvation but Jesus. There is no sacrifice but the cross. There is no victory besides the empty tomb. There is no hope besides repentance. And he will not be your Savior if he is not your Lord. You need to repent of your sin and give your life to Christ. There may be a showdown that's happening over your soul. Give your life to Christ. Come to Jesus. Submit to the lordship of the God of Carmel and the God of your heart. He's calling unto you. It is not too late. And the reason I know that is because some of you in this moment are feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit. You're feeling the conviction of God. And thank God Almighty that today you can stand on the side of righteousness. You can stand on the side of holiness. And today you can escape the fire. Would you stand with me? Lord, we bow before you today because you are holy, you are righteous, you are a consuming fire.
And God, we recognize that either we will be judged for our sin by your wrath, or Lord Jesus would become our substitute and our acceptable sacrifice. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.